Are you a financial professional wondering how to transition your clients from the accumulation to the distribution phase? How to engage individuals looking for a professional with true retirement income expertise? How to mutually develop a solution that resonates with them? Or how to grow your practice in a meaningful way that's based on best practices for financial planning? Then you've come to the right place. Sign up for our two-day masterclass for financial professionals hosted by Wade and Alex on January 23rd and 24th from 12 to 1.30 both days. Your future practice will thank you for it. Go to resaprofile.com slash masterclass. peanut butter and jelly, Oreos and milk, and now annuities and 401ks. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Retire with Style. I'm Wade and I'm here with Alejandro. And we're very happy to welcome a special guest this week, Bonnie Trichel of Endeavor Retirement. Uh, And Alex, if you'd like to kind of give our background a little bit, and we're happy to welcome you to the show, Bonnie. Bonnie, did we not say at the beginning of this that Wade was going to bring Bonnie, was going to do the intro to Bonnie? <laughs> did we not say that, Bonnie? We, is Wade putting me on the spot? Yeah, I don't have so, the bio in so front now, of <laughs> So now, Alex, you have to come up with something to say. You could just say my name and I can fill in the gaps. Here's Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Bonnie, you want to tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we get going i know you're 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 a great dinner guest (laughs) that's a great place to start i'm a great dinner guest and i really enjoy food and travel um so that's a little about me no um thank you guys so much for having me today um you know wade and alex it's been great getting to know you and i'm really excited to be here um as you mentioned my name is bonnie trichel I am an ERISA attorney by background. I try not to practice law as much as possible. Uh, So I spend more of my time working as a consultant, primarily to retirement plan advisors and helping them with governance frameworks uh, for their clients who are plan sponsors. When we say plan sponsors, those are people who've decided to have a retirement plan, perhaps a 401k or a 403b, so that they can help their employees to have access to workplace retirement savings. Great. A, a couple questions, Bonnie. What possessed you to be an ERISA attorney, or is that something that you kind of meandered to it? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think my parents are still wondering the same thing, right? <laughs> um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. Just it's very specific. Yeah, it's not really what most you know kids grew up saying. Like, I want to be an ERISA attorney. Um, And, you know, I really focus like when you think of an ERISA attorney, you could be on both like the health and welfare side and retirement. And I really just focus on the retirement side of the house. So um, I fell into it pretty much. Um, I started out doing securities defense work. So I was doing litigation for many of the same firms that I ended up doing ERISA work for, but I did um, litigation for a year and decided that really wasn't uh, the path for me. I didn't really enjoy uh, fighting with folks uh, and doing a bunch of doc reviews. So then I transitioned into the ERISA space and did that for a while before actually becoming an advisor for a period of time and now into the consulting world. 
Uh, and then just we have two sets of listeners. We have, you know, I don't know. I think it's halvesies right now, but consumers and advisors. From a consumer standpoint, I, I want to do a little bit of a just an ex- explanation. Uh, ERISA, that stands for? The Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and that was passed all the way back in 1974. And I think one thing that's somewhat interesting is, you know, in many ways, it hasn't changed much. So when we think about the legislative process, it's pretty cool that something um, that was passed to protect consumers. So if you think about it, if you are a consumer and you have a workplace plan, you contribute money to your retirement plan, but really it's your employer who's making those decisions about how that money should be handled, right? So they choose the investment advisor and they choose the record keeper and the the custodian where that money is going to sit. And so that's why we needed a federal law to really help create the rules or, you know, how this game should be played for how to protect that workplace savings. And so that's that's when we say ERISA, that's that federal law that's protecting employees and their savings and really that framework around it. And Alex, so just to, to make a point to the audience, because this is an issue that's come up before, uh, ERISA is not the same as RISA. We, we kind of realize in hindsight oh. <laughs> it's a very similar name and it can come across sounding the same, but we're not talking about the, the retirement income style awareness right now. It's a completely separate topic, although there can be some, some overlap with just ERISA with retirement income providing that to employees. The fundamental shift that happened with the traditional defined benefit world increasingly becoming defined contribution with 401k. And I think that is something that we'll be discussing quite a bit in this episode with just this whole idea of how to approach retirement income options inside of those employer retirement plans. I think you're spot on. And for, you know, if there's consumers listening to this or advisors listening to this in terms of what are we going to talk about? Look, I I think there's applicability for both. I mean, a a person's largest investment tends to be their, you know, other than the house in terms of asset value, it tends to be their 401k balance. And there's a whole dynamic that goes on behind the scenes that any consumer should actually be informed about, you know, with, with regards to the protections or the options that they have in place. And from an advisor standpoint, a lot of advisors are managing 401k plans, be it small plans and, and the like, and there are certain hurdles that they need to be aware of. And, and so I think, you know, having Bonnie on is, is great value for both. But, what we, you know, the first thing we want to get out of the way in, in terms of having Bonnie as, as a guest here, and this goes in our, in our theme, is that she is part of our advisory board for the RISA. <laughs> the RISA is laughter in Spanish. ERISA, the last thing that is, is laughter. <laughs> and so, uh, Bonnie, uh, if you don't mind just uh, let, letting the audience know, what, what, what drew you to this craziness that, that Wade and I are, are working on? And why did you think you were simpatico with this, with this approach? Yeah, well, probably a couple of things. Um, You know, one is I really have a lot of respect, um, Alex, both for you and for Wade and just the work that you've done historically with some of the research that you're contributing to the industry. So I think that's a great, great starting point with just kind of aligning on just values as, as, you know, the humans that you are. Um, But the second piece is when we think about this concept of retirement income, And I think we'll probably spend a little time just talking about that today. But for me, and, um, you know, maybe 
I'll briefly mention it. We'll get into it a little bit more, but it's really thinking about, um, as we mentioned, I work in the defined contribution space or the workplace saving space. And so we spend so much time thinking about how to help people save, but we haven't historically spent a lot of time thinking about how do we help people think about how to get money back out of that plan. And so this alignment with you was a really great opportunity to think about, hey, what does that look like? And how can we take the work that you guys are doing with RISA and maybe find ways to bridge that gap from the 401k plan or the defined contribution space and bridge that gap from what you're doing on the individual side with RISA and bring that to the retirement plan space. So that's one reason that it really interests me is that overall, when we think about how do we help people retire with dignity or be able to think in terms of that stream of income, what is my what is my paycheck, so to speak, look like in retirement? That was why it was really of interest to me. Wait, I wish I could speak like Bonnie. Did you see how eloquent that was? There no, were no that fillers. Was that was just <laughs> that was like I'm gonna write this down. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and so, Bonnie, with, with that in mind, thank you. I mean, seriously, thank you. It, it, it's such a value add. To use that corporate phrase to, to have you on, on board. We, we can't wait to you know really start uh, you know turn turning the ideas around it and seeing what we can do on our end. Uh, but, you know, on the defined contribution space, what what trends are you noticing in terms of retirement income? What do you see? How is that sort of Pangea shifting? Yeah. So, and again, I'll try to speak in terms of both kind of from the consumer perspective, as well as the advisor perspective, uh, thinking through that we have both of those audiences. But when we think about it in terms of your your 401k plan today, and I'm going to use the term 401k plan throughout. And when I say that, it doesn't mean I'm excluding 403b plans or other defined contribution plans. Um, but today, I would say it's immature in the 401k space. I think retirement income and thinking about that paycheck for life on the individual side is much more mature than we are in the defined contribution space. We have such an opportunity in that 401k space to start to grow and to learn more about it. And I think people are starting to really realize, hey, we've got to focus more on this because we have put so much money into these plans. We had the Pension Protection Act um, back in the mid-2000s in 2006, which started this idea of how we could really be auto-enrolling people and getting more money into plans more efficiently. But what we haven't come alongside and done as DB plans have become a thing of the past, we haven't had the corollary to say, how do we efficiently get money out of plans and provide education? for our consumers or for sometimes called participants, but how do we get that education to the end consumer to help them think in terms of that stream of income? So I think it's all of a sudden becoming more of a hot topic, but it requires a lot of education and it's still fairly immature. It's really exciting to see that we have regulators and legislators really focused on it. We have solution providers, so the insurance companies, the asset managers also really focused on it. We have different industry uh, groups and, and organizations, um, folks such as you know John Faustino over at Broadridge FI360, also a member of the RISA board, and some other industry groups, uh, the Retirement Income Consortium and NAPA, which is part of the American Retirement Association. We've got a lot of these different factors coming together to focus on it, but there's still a lot of work to be done. 
In, in that regard, so in the past, we've seen a lot of just efforts at looking at a rollover from the plan into a traditional IRA or that sort of environment. But are plan sponsors increasingly interested in the idea of keeping those assets in plan, perhaps because they feel that they can do a better job providing good alternatives or good options to those plan participants uh, in the retirement phase? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think you're raising a good point too, because from the advisor perspective, I think one question that comes up is, is in-plan retirement income competition for a wealth management advisor's business? And I think that's something that you know is should be discussed. And also the question of do plan sponsors want to kind of take this on and keep more assets in plan as opposed to letting it become rollovers. And I think that there's just very clearly a place for both um, for both to exist, right? Both rollovers as well as in plan retirement income options. And the reason I say that is I think there are different uh, consumers or, or different retirement investors that can benefit in both camps. Um, one way that I tend to approach it is that it depends on the total value of a retirement investor or consumer's account. So for example, higher asset balances will typically have the opportunity to roll their money out and be able to work with an advisor outside of the plan. There's some folks that I'll call kind of in that middle tranche that they may never have enough assets accumulated for most advisors to really want to take on that individual investor or consumer and actually work with them. And that's where it is a great opportunity for them to stay in plan, even after they have retired and no longer work with that institution. Um, so I think there is appetite from some plan sponsors to be able to keep the money in plan, even after some folks have terminated and retired. Um, the other component of that would be that, um, you know, because of and I don't want to go too far down this path, so you can rail me back. But um, because of Secure Act at the end of 2019, there's additional safeguards that are available now in the form of a safe harbor for employers or plan sponsors that provides a little additional comfort that wasn't there before. That if they take certain steps, they can meet this safe harbor and they would feel more comfort in offering one of these in-plan options than they would have before. So I think, Wade, to answer your question, um, there is more appetite than there was before to have these in-plan options. And what does, again, what, what does safe harbor mean? And what are those safe harbors? Yeah, so... Or characteristics <laughs> of the safe harbor. I, I don't know the way to <laughs> phrase that properly. Yeah, and I'll, I'll save I'll save everyone on the line. I won't go through all of the components, but the gist of this concept of a safe harbor is that we know. So, if an employer offers um, a retirement plan, they're doing so by taking on fiduciary obligations under ERISA. And the really great thing about ERISA is that it's this really high standard because we want to protect consumers. Um, but the downside for the employer is, is that if they mess up, then they are going to get in trouble, including having their own personal assets on the line, or they could have their own personal assets taken if they don't make the right choices in the way they offer the plan, as well as the investment options. So for example, in offering these in-plan options, so if they make available an in-plan retirement... And when you say in-plan options, you mean an in-plan annuity option? Yes, that's correct. And... 
I, I'm a little careful with my language in saying okay. in-plan annuity option because Perfect. some of these newer solutions, some have a guaranteed component and some are with in-plan contractual income option or in-plan or even option that, 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 could be a managed payout fund, something that doesn't okay. have any contractual. Okay. <laughs> that's gotcha, exactly gotcha. it, Wade. So that's why something I something that shoots out income when you retire. <laughs> that's why I'm so cautious with my language is no, no, fair um, enough, fair enough. To include both the managed payouts and the guaranteed options. Um, <clears throat> So, okay, so back to the question, which was, what's a safe harbor? It's basically, I describe it, it's like a get out of jail free, which is not exactly a good description, <laughs> but it's a, hey, the Department of Labor saying, if you do these things, then you will not get in trouble for offering this in-plan option. So it's, people were concerned that they don't want to select an in-plan annuity option Alex, to your point, and then the insurance carrier, you know, goes belly up five years from now. So the gist of it is, if you select an insurance company for this guaranteed option in the plan, Mr. or Miss plan sponsor, as long as you've properly received all of these disclosures and vetted it, then you're not going to get in trouble for that selection, even if something happens to this insurance carrier five, six years from now. So that's the gist of this kind of additional okay. protection that wasn't there before. And Wade, maybe you can f fix my uh, eloquence when I'm done with this <laughs> statement. But uh, we mentioned we we spoke with Faustino about John. I'm talking to him like he's my high school buddy, Faustino. <laughs> we spoke with John Faustino about uh, fiduciary, and mm -hmm. you you brought up that phrase when talking about you know under fiduciary within ERISA, mm -hmm. and and one of the comments he made is look there's there's two levels of fiduciary there's you know standard of care you know the golden rule kind of vibe and then just being able to you're up to date with the literature so you're showing this competence you're doing what any professional in your in your you know in your in your stand would would, would do because they're competent etc uh what i want to point out is that when we were talking we were speaking about you know, you can you can provide contractual income, and you're still operating within the fiduciary sort of uh, purview. It's interesting, and I want to point out again, just for the heck of it, that even within an ERISA sort of framework, it is still perfectly acceptable to have contractual income options and still function within a fiduciary manner. Did I say that properly, Wade? I'm doing that off the cuff, so I want to make sure I didn't mess up. No, that sounds right. It's, but it, the general issue kind of in the retail market is just the idea of commissions and how that fits into fiduciary, whereas that same sort of issue may be less applicable in plan or in, inside a retirement plan. Because there's no agent of record selling an annuity to the, inside the plan. But the product itself is something that's completely acceptable. <laughs> if you're looking for more personal advice, Please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. And maybe if I may jump in, I think one thing, Alex, you're pointing out that's useful is the difference between in-plan and out-of-plan annuities and kind of some of the confusion when, when I think it was Wade, maybe you asked the question of like, what's the status right now of in-plan solutions? 
And, you know, one of the things that comes up is a lot of advisors, from my perspective, they're still kind of, um, I don't want to say they're anti in plan solutions, but there's a lot of questions around like, hey, aren't these things expensive, right? Why wouldn't we, why would we add an in plan option? Why wouldn't we just stick with, you know, very low cost options for a retirement plan? You know, if you think about target date funds and, you know, you can get target date funds very low cost. And so that's a lot of the question that comes up is kind of this difference in pricing, for example, between in-plan and out-of-plan annuities and really digging into kind of just some of the myths and realities, which I know we don't want to go down that whole path on this podcast, but um, there's just a lot of questions if you're historically working gotcha. in the retail space with annuities and how that's different in the, the plan context. I, I, well, not to go down that hole, but you know, how do you take a 20-foot hole? You dig, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll dig a five-foot hole maybe. Uh and wait, you know, chime in on this. And, and I and Bonnie, you you've seen this, but I think that argument about hey, this in plan annuity is more expensive than a, than if I would get just a, a whatever, a, a, you know, mutual fund or, or, or the a target date fund or whatever. My, my comment to that is that they, they do different things. One is a risk mm-hmm. on product and keep costs low, and you're capturing the market. The other one is providing an insurance, you know, an insurance functionality to it which is a risk off product, then it's just priced relative to what it's doing. I don't think they can be compared next to each other from a pricing standpoint because they're doing different things. And I think, unfortunately, I think annuities or contractual income was sold many years ago as this as this investment kind of vehicle when then you can, then, you know, it's fair game to compare fees if you're, if you're selling it as that. But the reality is I, I think that's a misrepresentation. These things are risk off products and they're insurance and they're priced according to the mortality tables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, that merit, that merit the cost. Wait. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, maybe another interesting application of that too, is just with ERISA, the, <laughs> the pricing all has to be done on a unisex basis so that you, in the retail market, annuities do have gender-based pricing, especially immediate annuities. And with women living longer, that makes annuities more expensive on the retail market relative to men. And you don't have that sort of difference. So there, there can be a lot of issues where, I guess, getting into if the um, plan participant is working with an advisor and comparing options, there are going to be differences with kind of the institutional pricing in plan with these gender, potential gender differences and so forth. And so it, it does create a host of issues. But I guess to Alex's point, yeah, the whole idea of the cost of the annuity, it's its really that risk pooling and insurance element more so than just some sort of management fee. I, it's not a price gouging thing. It's just, it's, it's, it's the, you're paying for the dynamics of the more, of the risk pooling. The, the, the other thing, Bonnie, that I, I think you mentioned at, at the beginning of this sort of answer that I, I don't want it to fly under the radar because I think it has implications from even a, a government policy standpoint. And it goes back to, if you have, if you're passing the sort of net net worth threshold, then you could, you know, most likely you're in the realm of somebody that would use an advisor. Mm-hmm. Hence, you could get investment advice, and you could determine at that point with the advisor if contractual income makes sense, if a total return portfolio makes sense, if time segmentation makes sense. But you have somebody working with you because you meet a certain threshold. That most likely you can find an advisor. You're not you're not at a dearth for options mm-hmm. at, at that point. But if you're if you're within a certain threshold, I, I don't know what that number is, 
you're a little bit in no man's land is what I'm hearing in terms of getting investment advice once you retire. Hence, contractual income can actually help scale scale out the ability for somebody to the ability for an entire population, frankly, to have a good retirement income plan. Am I reflecting that properly? That was so well said. And um, you hear that way? You hear that way? <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I think that's my perspective, right? And and some folks might not agree with me, but I think that is my belief is that for that kind of in the middle tier, and you know, these aren't hard and fast numbers, but you know, if you think of that kind of two hundred thousand to, you know, maybe even up to a million, a lot of times there is that kind of in-between piece that it is hard to get a wealth management advisor to work with you. And and some of those solutions have started to come down market where you can get some of those um, advisors to take on smaller accounts. But in many times it's education only, maybe not in a meaningful way. Um, so it is a way to really help the masses be able to have access to a better retirement income plan while gaining that in plan and not going out and finding an advisor because they may never be able to do so. And that's that's one reason I'm really passionate about the topic is because it's an opportunity to hopefully be able to provide retirement income for the masses or a retirement income plan for the masses. And and Wade, what would you how would you I, I think I know, but I'm I'm almost like playing Karnak here a little bit. What what would be your response to somebody listening in saying, no, but I can Online, I can go to like a Betterment or something like that. And with 200 grand, I can get a model portfolio that will take care of my retirement. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that would be expressing a, a total return style that, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that's exactly your, it. your style. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, well, I mean, it's this interesting evolution that we went through with this sort of employer plan with that shift from defined benefit that in some sense, just bringing annuities back into the mix provides a way to create a traditional pension in plan. And so it's, it's valuable to be able to have that option for people and to allow for solutions that aren't just related to an investment based portfolio decision. So if you are comfortable with the, um, rolling over to like a, a robo-advisor type environment. Uh, that That is an option, but you know, just having more access and more opportunities in plan, I, I think is quite an important path for us to take as a society. And yeah, I know that's and like, go ahead. I, I would, I would, yeah, Bonnie, and, and you're, you're more of a student of this than, than, than I am. And, and I think Wade is in terms of how this works, but is it fair to say, that you know, we went from a defined benefit from a, the world of the company pensions to defined contributions, the world of the 401k. And then there's kind of with this movement going back to this defined benefit, but they're doing so from the manner of we're not putting the liabilities on the balance sheet of the company. We're putting the liabilities on the balance sheet of a of an insur- of a third-party insurance company that's providing the service, and this is what they're expert at. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair way of saying that. And also um, with a shared responsibility with the the consumer, I think is kind of the other component of that, right? So the liabilities on this third party insurer, to your point, but with a shared with a shared responsibility of, you know, you as a consumer still have to participate in this process, but the employer is going to make this 
um, this vehicle available to you. And so I think everyone's playing a role there, which I think is a, a that shift in how it was before. No, and that's a good dynamic. I mean, what, what's, I, I remember Finke had said this, uh, again, my high school reference of just the last name, but he, didn't he say something like, and, and studies will show you that if you have a defined benefit plan and you get offered, hey, do you want to switch this out? for for a market portfolio you know once you have this income they they say no they they actually want to maintain what they have so this actually provides a nice sort of preference item that if you're somebody that you know if you're in a if you're an employee and if 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 this resonates with you then that's a great option that you can provide now that wasn't there before but bonnie what what happens to the folks that are a hundred thousand i i you know okay they're not in the middle they're in the the low end of the of the spectrum, uh, what, 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 if they're left to their own devices, what, what's, what's available to them in retirement? Yeah, great question. So you're, I think you're kind of getting at the like I use that threshold of two hundred thousand um, because I think one of the things I've kind of struggled with is I I use that two hundred to a million to kind of talk through if we're trying to provide someone with a dignified retirement, where's the group where we could make the most impact? And I think one of my fears is for below 200,000, if you don't save enough, having a reti- an in-plan retirement income solution, this isn't going to, this isn't really going to help you because you've at least still got to be saving something for this in-plan solution to be able to help you where you have social security plus the annuity component from this in-plan solution, plus maybe, you know, the reliance of the market as well. And all of those are stacking on top of each other to really get you to this dignified retirement, right? And so my concern is that if you're not saving at least something to help get you to that 100,000 or 200,000 threshold, just having an in-plan solution isn't going to get you there. Um, so I think the message from my perspective and would love your guys' thoughts is if you're not going to be able to get to 100000 to 200000 by the time you get to retirement, it's really more of a conversation about getting you some additional savings opportunities to start gotcha. getting you there. But maybe you guys have different thoughts. No, I'd agree with that. And it's important for people to have some liquid assets. And yeah, at some point, the Social Security is an annuity and being able to make a, a smarter decision there. So possibly even having some sort of tool where part of that smaller balance can be used to help sustain delaying the social security benefit might really be the best way to get <laughs> additional annuitized income in those scenarios. And I, I recall Mark Erie from, he was at the treasury department for a long time. Uh, and a, 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 he's the one who created the QLAC and so forth. But he talked about how we shift from, really defined benefit world had a defined contribution that people were effectively by working, saving for their retirement. And the 401k world, he called it an undefined contribution where it's all voluntary. And and so that's now we do have better tools to get like auto enrollment, auto escalation of the savings rates and so forth, but it's voluntary. And so a lot of people are reaching that retirement phase not necessarily having a big pot of assets, either because they weren't saving or because of the investment decisions they made and potentially just not really investing, but leaving things in cash or in the the stable value type option that 
over time didn't give them the types of growth that <laughs> compound interest is important. And if you're not achieving the compound interest, you're getting to retirement with a small account balance. And that's, I, I agree with what you said that, you know, the, the in-plan options for lifetime income do require a certain level of assets before they really, there's much of a conversation to be had. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, both Bonnie and Wade, it's not one of these, let them eat cake kind of things. It's more, if they're not at a threshold, then let's just say 150,000 to say 150,000. The concern isn't even, what are they going to do when they retire? The concern should be getting them to accumulate more, getting them to somehow save more while they're working to try to, you know, to try to up that number. So they have a lot more options available, whether that's a realistic thing. And I'm just speaking within a let them eat cake manner. I don't know, but it, it's really more, the priority is actually, let's not worry about what somebody with $50,000 has to do with, you know, from a retirement income in plan option. It's more, let's see how we can get that number up, you know, before they retire. That That's the, the initial kind of reaction I had. Then I do agree with you, Wade, and I th- I want to say Blanchett, you know, talks about this quite a bit, which is, okay, the best annuity is Social Security. So if somehow we could get them to delay Social Security, I mean, that in and of itself, because if you're, you're probably not saving that much, you're living within a standard of living that's not the same as somebody who has a $2 million portfolio. You know, they're they're probably different. And so somebody that probably has $80,000, in retire in, in a in a 401k plan by the time they retire you know the trick becomes you know how can we help them also extend social security so they get that that social security pension payout a bit higher once they do it so you know what are some bridging strategies around that and that could you know just focusing on that could be a, a huge win make sense yeah that's always the first step of any annuity is if you're claiming social security early and buying an annuity, it's generally much less efficient than first making sure you can delay social security. The, the implied yeah, payout rate on delaying social security is better than any commercial annuity can offer. And what is it? Only like 10% of the people like uh, delay social security, uh, the, something like that. Uh, yeah. You've been reading David Blanchett's LinkedIn. Uh, it's, it's closer <laughs> no, to 20%. I, have not. I, I know that off <laughs> the top that of my head, wait, how dare no, no, you? That, what I think the that's, hell? that's a dated number. It's, <laughs> David, this who? Is a, education's <laughs> working. <laughs> it's That's where Alex gets all of no. his facts. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know where you got that David, from. who? <laughs> but no, How about just keeping up with 20%. literature? <laughs> <laughs> no, go on, wait, sorry. No, it's, it's just closer to 20%. It's, people are getting the education. It used to be about half of Americans claimed at 62 now that number is well below 30%, getting closer is it? to maybe 25% or less. Yeah, people are getting the message about delaying Social Security or not claim, at least not claiming as soon as they possibly can. I mean, but sometimes you need the money too. So, you know, that goes to your point. How do you get them to save mm-hmm. more? Are you a financial professional wondering how to transition your clients from the accumulation to the distribution phase? How to engage individuals looking for a professional with true retirement income expertise. How to mutually develop a solution that resonates with them. Or how to grow your practice in a meaningful way that's based on best practices for financial planning. Then you've come to the right place. 
Sign up for our two-day masterclass for financial professionals hosted by Wade and Alex on January 23rd and 24th from 12 to 1.30 both days. Your future practice will thank you for it. Go to resaprofile.com slash masterclass. And so, Bonnie, what role does Endeavor play in this? And Endeavor is the company in which Bonnie effectively leads. What, what, what role does Endeavor do within this for advisors and underlying indirectly for consumers? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so to your point, um, I'm the founder and chief solutions officer of Endeavor Retirement. And our role is we've got a couple of different initiatives that we're working on in the industry, um, serving as a subject matter expert, um, one of which is to the what's called the Retirement Income Consortium. Another is with um, the National Association of Plan Advisors, uh, working on a certificate program for them. But really, uh, going back to where we started the conversation in saying, you know, it's really fairly immature in the sense that um, in-plan solutions are still pretty new. A lot of new solutions are coming out. And when I say that, what I mean is for many consumers on the line, if you went and looked at your 401k plan and you were looking for this in-plan solution, you probably wouldn't find it today. But if you look three or four years from now, you would probably be able to find one, two, maybe three options, or at least that's where I would um, put my money in betting that you'll find more and more options. And hopefully then the RISA will be able to be kind of a selection tool to help you find your preference and then help you figure out which of those options you should be selecting and plan. But we'll, we'll save that for another conversation. Um, (laughs) You should put that in the business model, Wade. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a great idea, Um, but maybe I've said too much, but coming back to kind of Endeavor's role, what, what we do is really help with, creating that education, um, both with the SNAPA project, as well as then the Retirement Income Consortium, and really helping to educate advisors as they work with employers and then end consumers on what is retirement income in a plan? What will that look like? What are those fiduciary obligations? And so that really is how we're fitting into this retirement income discussion today. It's really important work to to bring I know just bringing that why retirement income is different from wealth management, wealth accumulation. It's a message that takes time for people to fully grasp. And, and so plan sponsors, not necessarily because their business is not <laughs> managing retirement income strategies. Uh, no, they it, do need it, opportunities to learn about these things. So it's great that you're heading those types of initiatives. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. So it, just a frame it in another way. So if you're selling widgets, I'm a business owner that's selling widgets, right? And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I want to, I got five employees. I want to start you know, saving for retirement myself. Let me put in a retirement. Let me put in a, a 401k plan within the 401k plan. Okay. It's easy. I, I get an advisor to help me set that up a financial. Sometimes it works through payroll, mm-hmm. but let's just say I have an, a financial professional. I want a financial professional to, to provide a plan for me. That financial professional, in addition to selecting investments, I don't, I'm not sure people realize that that financial professional has many hats that they're sort of putting on when they're when they when when they hire when they're hired by company X Y Z to to set up a proper plan. 
it would be interesting just if, if you don't mind just going through what, what are all the things that this advisor has to kind of deal with to make sure that it's set up properly. And by default, the advisor has to make sure it's set up properly because that's going to be a reflection of the business owner to, to you know, to, to a large extent from a, from a legal standpoint too. And so I, I think it's, and the other point I would like to throw in Bonnie is how much regulations change, hmm. you know, just keeping up with the literature on, on the government changes is, is a heck of a thing. So if I am a company XYZ, I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm the widget company and I'm looking for an advisor what are all the things that this advisor will be doing as they set up a plan for me? And how do I make sure as a business owner that I'm selecting an advisor that can kind of maintain? It's one thing to just sell me a plan. It's another thing to make sure it's being run properly. I think that's, I think, I think you go a long way towards helping that advisor do their job well. Yeah, that's, um, there's a lot of components to that question because I think one thing I want to touch on um, is you mentioned all the changes. And there are so many changes for retirement plan advisors to keep up with and, and any advisors, wealth management and plan advisors alike. But I think, Alex, you hit on a big thing, which is advisors have to keep up with changes both from the Department of Labor and from the IRS. So there's both of those frameworks. And then there's other things they have to keep up with. So one of the huge things we're watching right now is what's going to come out of Congress by the end of the year, and if we will have Secure 2.0. And so that's another really big thing we have to keep track of. So, you know, overarching, it's keeping up with all the changes. That's one component. But when I think of what are the different categories of things an advisor helps their employers with or plan sponsors, rather. It's investments. It's selection and monitoring of service providers, which means the record keeper, the custodian, maybe a TPA, an auditor, if it's a little bit larger plan. The third category would be what I call employee engagement. So making sure employees get their notices, making sure that we're actually moving the needle on what the needs of the plan and its participants are, and are we actually meeting those needs? And then last, I call it ops and administration, which is a really big bucket to catch a lot of things. But those are all the different things that the IRS says, hey, your plan has to actually operate the way the document says. And plan documents are so long and have so many little tiny provisions. It's a lot to keep up with. So I usually divide it into those four categories. But depending on how you slice the obligations, you know, there's 50 plus different obligations of a plan sponsor or employer when they decide, yes, we want to offer a plan. And those obligations continue until the last penny is out of a plan when a plan's terminated. So there's a lot that your 401k, you know, sponsors are doing when they decide, yes, we want to offer this benefit. It really is a big undertaking. And so this is where you provide you know, a, a, a huge facilitation for advisors to be able to implement this, you know, in a manner that's efficient. Because, you know, they, the, what they're good at is not understanding ERISA law. Their their value is understanding how to put together an investment portfolio. At least I hope. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> that's the goal of Endeavor is really that we provide all the governance framework around it. Advisors, you go out and work with your clients and, you know, maintain those relationships and you do the investment piece and we'll help you with everything else. No, the, the other point, I, I, I think it's interesting that you said, because you, you could be listening to this now thinking, oh, I want an in-plan annuity or I want to, or, you know, contractual, whatever. Uh, what, 
you you think it's going to be a few years before this is going to be more in the in the you know out there where where it's more common you know if i had to guess i think look you'd be lucky to just get one option right now for a while and until that reaches some sort of tipping point whatever the number that is then people will add more and more of these right isn't that kind of would be the progression of something like this I think that's exactly right. I think um, the most common way that uh, an employee or a consumer would see it today is their own record keeper would have the option that's, I'm going to say, proprietary to them. So, you know, your own, you'll see one option and it's going to be the one that's proprietary to that service provider with the plan today. And and real quick, just because a record keeper, to me, just for the consumers, that's the the accounting functionality of uh, of your 401k that's where you would log in and see your your account values i, I just wanted to yeah. throw that out there <laughs> no good clarification um because we get into these these plan terms and go down rabbit holes but i think eventually where we will see more options is once the technology has continued to evolve and then we have more i'm going to use the term portability but where we have the availability of multiple options on multiple platforms or on multiple record keepers. That's where I think as that momentum continues and and to the point you made, Alex, when we see like one platform getting a lot of momentum with its own users of its platform, and we see that with a couple of different platforms and they'll say, oh, there is enough momentum here. Now we can go add on different platforms. Got it. No, that's good. I, I think this is something... Look, I, I, I kind of I, I don't know how much I read nowadays anymore, but I do look at the headlines. I do look at the, 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 the scrolls, if you will, the feeds. And I've noticed a lot more headlines that lead with the in-plan options, in-plan options that have to do with annuity. So I, I think this is just a huge push probably now over the next 10 months where it's just a deluge, I, I think at least, I don't know if it's going to happen in terms of actual implementation, but at least the the awareness of it is, is, is starting, and overwhelming is too strong a word, but you're starting to see it, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more, almost like playing punch buggy, where now you're like, wow, there are a lot of them out there. Like you're starting to see this, the, just the news about this, you know, to a greater extent, you know, lately. Am I off on that or what do you think, Wade? No, I think you're right. I think, and a lot of large institutions are working on developing their strategy around what type of solution they'll offer. So when a, a new option comes down the, the pipeline, there's going to be media stories about that as well, which may be triggering some of that coverage. But yeah, it's yeah. definitely going to be a growth area. And so. so Bonnie's going to be very busy. Yes. <laughs> and Deborah's going to be very busy over the next few years, which, hey, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> No, and, and Bonnie, you can see why, you know, we, we thought, you know, we were super excited to have you join us on the advisory board for the RISA because obviously we think this is something that no one can see around corners, but we definitely think this is something that, you know, an idea whose time has come. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate to have you help us be part of this and and lead the charge as it relates to the RISA on, on, on this vertical. But, uh, you know, I, what can I say other than, you know, thank you so much for helping us out with this. Yeah, well, thank you again for inviting me uh, to be on the show and to uh, be a part of the board. I'm really excited to collaborate with you and see uh, Reese's growth. You guys are off to such an awesome start, so I'm really excited to be part of it. Thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, thank you. Have a great week, everyone.
Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 